Welcome to the Things Learned Podcast. My name is Steve, and these are some notable things that I learned during the 47th and 48th weeks of 2011. November 23rd. Guardsman Bob is from Denmark. The concept of streaming competitive online games professionally was somewhat of an up-and-coming line of work in these days. While it didn't originate specifically in 2011, I feel the year was sort of a breakout point in which it became a viable career path for folks in the space. So in past episodes, I touched upon how League of Legends itself became a gradual, roaring success, gobbling up plenty of hours in our friends group over the course of about three years or so. The thing about this game is that it requires a bit of a commitment to even play one match, as the traditional 5-on-5 mode averages between 30 to 45 minutes a game. Sometimes they can even go longer if the teams are at a stalemate. During this time, I remember I would often have to examine my schedule to make sure I would be able to get a game in, and I wasn't the only one with this problem. I knew a few folks who had been late for work shifts or missed buses due to being stuck in a league match. Obviously, if one wanted to go pro, they'd basically need to make this a full-time job based on the slow nature of the game. But for regular Joes, we established that enjoyment of League is dependent on having time to play it, but what if there was another option? Enter live streaming. It was the formative years of the concept, and back then it was a wild west. Twitch.tv was still brand new as of July, and wasn't considered great just yet. It had considerable buffering, lag, and quality issues all over the place. I remember attempting to watch a tournament hosted on the site to be met with constant stream buffering every few seconds. The now defunct own3d.tv, or owned TV, I guess, was a much more reliable streaming site in its heyday, at least in my experience. One of the most notorious early league streamers was a man named George Hotshot GG Georgialitis, dropping out of college in 2010 to become a full-time professional league streamer and competitive player. I distinctly remember his stream being, uh, enthusiastic if I had to summarize it kindly. If there was a first impression to be had on professional game streaming and its culture, Hotshot GG's broadcast was not a good one. I remember his viewership was consistently high, among the most popular on Own3D. Being someone around the age as myself who was heavily invested in competitive online gaming, he had quite an immature, arrogant, and crass demeanor. One simply needs to search for Hotshot GG Rage on YouTube, focusing on the results from 7 to 10 years ago and you'll get the general idea of just how bad it could get. It was no question that George was a good player, but he had a lot of maturing to do, and it didn't set a good example for streaming culture as a whole, considering he was one of the pioneers. It seems that, in the years since, 
he has transitioned to more of a management role for the organization he founded, CounterLogic Gaming. Judging by some of his recent reflections on Twitter, he's grown quite a bit since a decade ago, so I'm happy for him. Anyways, back to the context of 2011. So after seeing a bad example of a League streamer, what were our alternatives? Enter Bjorn Guardsman Bob Dons, a streamer and Guild Wars player who pivoted to League, and the subject of today's thing learned. His demeanor was almost the exact opposite of Hotshot GG in every way imaginable, with his calm, calculated, humble, and inviting commentary that never strove for theatrics. Perhaps this came as a result of his age, being a bit older than George, and less prone to the volatility of college years. His stream was laid back and laden with great music, not to mention he was also very good at League himself, albeit not necessarily top tier. That didn't matter to me, however, as he would still play at a skill level worlds apart from my lowly abilities, and one could learn a lot from him. His streams were also fantastic as background noise, with little to no risk of spontaneous audio waveform blowouts compared to other, more bombastic streamers. I picked up on his accent, and on this 23rd of November, I guess I finally figured out that he was from Denmark. Nice detective work there, Steve, looking up public information. Bob's sense of humor and calm demeanor makes him incredibly watchable, and I'm happy to see that he still streams on Twitch, even to this day. He's made a lucrative career for himself for sure. I think one of the most elegant summarizations of his streaming content is when he sings a parody of Yesterday by the Beatles when filling out a player report. There's just something about the way he goes about it that just feels rather wholesome. November 24th. Samsung makes washers and dryers. Did you know? I didn't. I don't know why I didn't, but I didn't. Samsung, or Samsung Electronics if we want to be specific, makes a whole range of products, from TVs to kitchen appliances. The 80-plus-year-old South Korean company notes that they first struck it big in the 1970s with mass production of black-and-white TV sets. They also dabbled in all kinds of other various home appliances, anywhere from air conditioners to washing machines. Why didn't I know this by 2011? I couldn't tell you, considering you can go to most big-box stores and see Samsung plastered all over the kitchen section. Life's Great Mysteries November 25th, TSO recruits local orchestra members for their shows. TSO, unabbreviated as the Trans-Siberian Orchestra, is just the right amount of cheese. Usually known for their energetic fusion of metal, rock, and orchestral holiday tunes, this group does not disappoint. On this Friday evening, we went to see them live. I'm not positive on where I heard this, but I learned that to achieve full orchestral sound, TSO will reach out to local and regional contacts to recruit for shows. TSO largely relies on session musicians, which may vary from venue to venue. 
The About page on their website contains an impressive list of family members, which might either amount to regular contributors or the aforementioned local contacts, such as band directors, whom might in turn get the resources needed to play in the ensemble. In a review I found on the Chicago Tribune, the writer sits down and talks with one of the rotating band members in further detail, saying it's an intentional decision to crowdsource the band outside of a few core members. TSO is quite active in the philanthropic space, known to donate portions of ticket sales to local charities. Anyways, I thought the live show was fantastic. It opened with an original Christmas-oriented story with narration and kid-friendly sights and sounds. It was somewhat interesting, but kind of oddly cringeworthy at times. The second half of the show, however, was phenomenal, pivoting to a much more traditional rock concert-styled holiday show with tons of awesome effects. Their mainstay singles hold up very well as always, but they also try to experiment a little to varying degrees of success and failure. They still tour to this day, especially around the end of the year, so be sure to check them out if you're interested. November 26th, what the uncanny valley is. This is always a fun topic. For those unaware, the uncanny valley is the human response to something that appears to be somewhat close to resembling human life, but is just off enough that evokes a negative reaction. I can likely assure that almost everyone has experienced this feeling before, be it from certain dolls, to animatronics, to video game characters. While technology and design can resemble organic human life, it's surprisingly difficult to get all the details down perfectly. And the funny thing is that those seemingly trivial details truly matter in making the illusion convincing. IEEE.org has an article detailing an essay written by Masahiro Mori on the subject, hypothesizing that, quote, a person's response to a human-like robot would abruptly shift from empathy to revulsion as it approached but failed to attain a lifelike appearance, end quote. The uncanny valley itself is a portion of a mathematically calculated graph that places human affinity on the y-axis with various human and non-human entities on the x-axis. Certain portions of the chart dip the affinity value in what is highlighted as the uncanny valley. Examples in this range included a prosthetic hand and a bunraku puppet, which visually looks like a human, but has enough characteristics that look just off or unsettling. In The Legend of Zelda Majora's Mask, this effect can be observed when playing the in-game song The Elegy of Emptiness, which generates a non-moving husk trophy of the player, which is designed in such a way that it's just different enough from your character where it feels creepy to be around. In Mori's essay, it is observed that a robot is more likely to be accepted by humans when it specifically does not look like a human as there is a distinct separation. There is also an observation that there might be a happy medium, but again, all of the details must be perfect, such as a robotic arm with a covering that resembles human skin. If done right, 
it can be mistaken for an arm, but the slightest blemish breaks the illusion. Movement is also a major contributor to the uncanny valley in the same manner of visual details. This all makes you think about how we are creeped out by certain aspects and really puts your brain into a strange place. I'm not sure exactly how or where I learned about this on this day, but it was quite a Saturday read. November 27th. My old phone runs better with little to no apps installed on it. In the same vein as the thing learned in late October, I think this might have been related to the degradation and quality of my Samsung Droid Charge's flash memory. While this might not have necessarily helped as much as I had hoped, running fewer background apps and services lowers the chattiness of the disk. And what better way to do that on Android than to uninstall a bunch of apps? Unfortunately, this was only a temporary fix, as I observed that the hardware rot caught up to even this minimalistic software state, and I continued to limp along with this phone for a little while longer. I gave this phone a solid chance, using it up through mid-2013, so I got by using various tricks such as this. It wasn't elegant, but it was enough, for the most part. November 29th, Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. I sure got a lot of things learned out of that music history class I was taking this semester. This day's lecture discussed film music in the 1950s, highlighting how it drew on the established classical and popular spheres and conventions of Western music. Utilization of motifs, rhythm, and pacing, as well as tonality, were the key points to remember. Known for innovating in the film score space, Director Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo employed Richard Herman and Muir Matheson to incorporate non-diegetic music to a creepy and disoriented feeling in the soundtrack to the 1958 film. Arpeggios were utilized to stimulate a spinning, dizzying sensation. The soundtrack frequently ends with no resolution, intentionally implementing cognitive dissonance to keep the viewer on their toes matching the film's overall tone. Incidentally, in the same lecture, we went over how 1959's Anatomy of a Murder was one of the first films to use a jazz soundtrack, using non-dark music in stark contrast to Vertigo. We would watch the film in class, and obviously it is one of the greats, but the soundtrack is something that should be placed into focus for making it such a classic. November 30th, Command-Shift-4-Spacebar equals Screen Cap Window. Screenshots, one of the staples of the internet. Perhaps trivial today, but in the bad old days, I don't exactly remember folks utilizing them all that often unless it was for some big professional publication. I discussed in a previous episode on how the ability to take screenshots on a mobile device in 2011 was not always a guarantee, and while this wasn't exactly true for desktop operating systems, it wasn't always the easiest in terms of discoverability, either. The Windows operating system has the print screen key, which can capture a frame of the computer's display to your clipboard, but unless you knew that, 
you wouldn't exactly be aware of it. From Windows XP and older, this was effectively the only way one could take a screenshot without installing some third-party software, such as PrintKey 2000, a utility I frequently saw cited as one of the oldies but goodies. Once we got to Windows 7, the Snipping Tool utility made screenshot creation significantly more accessible to the standard user, allowing for a graphical interface to take and edit the snapshots. On the Mac, it seems that the ability to take a screenshot has been consistent throughout its 20-plus year lifespan. However, it is and remains somewhat esoteric to the average user. Pressing Command, Shift, and the number 3 key on the keyboard will take a full screenshot of your Mac's display, saving it to the desktop by default. On older versions of macOS, it just performed the action with little to no visual feedback other than perhaps a white flash and a file magically appearing on the desktop. In newer versions, there is an animation and interface allowing for edits to be made before it is saved. If one wants to get more specific and only take a screenshot of a region of the display, either for efficiency, clarity, or security purposes, one may press Command, Shift, and the number 4 on the keyboard to draw a box and then proceed. Another combination exists to take a screenshot of a specific window as well, if one so desires. I enjoyed the option where I could draw a rectangle around the region I wanted, which eliminated capturing any extra areas I didn't care about, as one would get by using Command-Shift-3. This method of taking screenshots on macOS is still relevant to this day, and while it isn't fully featured or perfect in my opinion, it gets the job done at a basic level. December 1st, CPI and SPI ratios for project management. CPI, short for Cost Performance Index, represents cumulative work done for the resources used to date, while SPI, short for Schedule Performance Index, represents the ratio of cumulative work done to what should have been done to date. If the CPI and SPI are 0.9 or less, you have a problem on your hands. Basically, these are the are you on track metrics that might land you in some fair bit of trouble if you fall behind. Sounds like micromanagement to me, but at the same time, it's a powerful measurement utility for project management. I wrote this down as part of the lecture notes for today's IT project management class, and it was pertaining to keeping baselines constant unless the scope changes. We also touched upon earned value assessment and projected versus actual work performed. PMStudyCircle.com sums it up by stating, quote, Schedule Performance Index and Cost Performance Index help you analyze the progress of a project. These measures can help you determine if you are performing up to standard. You are doing well if the ratio is higher than 1. If the ratio is less than 1, there is a problem with the project, and you should take corrective action. In ideal conditions, the ratio should be 1." End quote. Glad to know that the lecture and my notes seem to align with reality. 
December 2nd slash etc slash bootpd.plist is where the DHCP settings are in OSX server. This was more of a good-to-know nugget, of which didn't really have much substance aside from, yeah, that exists. DHCP, or Dynamic Host Configuration Protocol, is a service that assists in handing out IP addresses to devices on a network. Often, a dedicated home router performs this duty, but in an enterprise or custom networked environment, a dedicated server running Windows or Mac OS might instead take over DHCP duties. Great for troubleshooting or resetting broken settings that couldn't be resolved by the server app's graphical management interface, this raw DHCP config file, known as a plist in macOS, contains the raw settings in plain text that can be edited if necessary. Often, it is not recommended to go down this route, as applications and services built on top of this file might react strangely if edited in such a way. However, in some emergency circumstances, or perhaps in the spirit of automation, it would be a handy tool in the toolbox. There is also, of course, the potential for using the configuration file without the server app at all, instead running DHCP via the command line method, utilizing the Unix conventions that macOS adheres to. I found one article that details how to configure it in this manner, so all in all, keep this file in the back of your mind if you ever find yourself in need of it. And finally, December 3rd, a whole lot about Skyward Sword's gameplay mechanics. The Legend of Zelda Skyward Sword is a late-era Wii game that was freshly released just a few weeks prior to this date. The hype for this title was enormous, having seen it be discussed and delayed countless times from the early days of the Wii onward. Using more advanced motion technology, Skyward Sword was designed for the Wii Remote from the ground up, using more advanced motion technology to attempt to map one-to-one -one motion in-game for swordplay and other activities. Swing vertically, and Link's sword swings vertically. The nunchuck controller attachment in the opposite hand handled shield actions, and of course, various combinations of motions from both controllers will initiate things such as spin attacks and whatnot. Unfortunately, if you're looking for another glowing review of this game, I'm sorry to say this, but I never had a fantastic experience with this title due to overwhelming technical problems regarding its controls. While the idea of playing a 3D Zelda title where one has full control over Link's sword motions sounds great on paper, the technology of the era, while impressive, still was not capable of delivering such a vision. Right off the bat, I had difficulties with getting the game to correctly recognize what direction the Wii Remote was swung in, and as the game progressed and further relied on these conventions, the more fed up I became. Parenthetically, the game had other issues outside of the control sphere. The overall design and gameplay mechanics, in my opinion, took a substantial step backward from Twilight Princess, 
which truly felt like a wonderful, logical progression of the series. Skyward Sword, in comparison, decided to rely on a significantly smaller world design, opting for the player to constantly revisit areas with new abilities to achieve new objectives. While I understand this approach, it is not fulfilling from a player perspective, and coming back to the same bland levels gets very old very fast. Nintendo opted for a less is more approach here, but honestly I feel they failed to achieve the more bit, despite having more than enough development time to pull it off. I did stick it out and make it to the end credits after about 30 or 40 hours of play, but unfortunately, I didn't find it all that enjoyable after all was said and done, especially towards the end, where the control issues became so much of a problem where I distinctly recall the game requiring one to constantly recalibrate or reset the controller every 10 to 15 seconds or so, which to me just feels like a total failure, resorting to constant technical troubleshooting just to enjoy a video game. Ironically, the simpler motion controls of Twilight Princess ended up being more enjoyable to me due to far fewer points of failure, relying on simpler and abstracted axis-based motions as opposed to one-on-one -on -one gyroscopic movement. Of course, one needs to look no further than various reviews and forums to read about the debate on whether or not Skyward Sword was a decent title due to its controls as it's clearly a divisive subject. Some love it, and others hate it. Unfortunately, I'm in the latter camp on this one. It seems like Nintendo caught wind of this discourse, taking a long stretch of time before releasing a new 3D title in 2017, sans motion-oriented swordplay almost entirely. We've reached the end of this two-week stretch. Quite a knowledge-packed fortnight, I even left a few topics out, such as a few additional disorganized odds and ends regarding macOS server that I didn't fully have much to say about that hasn't already been said, as well as a few random facts about catching a local bus. In addition to the things learned on these days, I found a few other things worth noting as well. Let's go over a few cool extra topics. On this episode of Esoteric Internet History, on November 21st, I got the latest Bone the Fish newsletter. I miss this website. It was a cool little discussion forum that aggregated key points pertaining to when a TV show, actor, or movie series jumped the shark, alluding to the moment in the sitcom Happy Days when Fonzie jumped the shark in an episode from 1977 somehow correlating to with the supposed decline in show quality after that point. One could either create or vote on a specific moment. The site was once known as jumptheshark.com, but tvguide.com appeared to take over the domain after an apparent sale. Sometime after the changing of the guard, the original site was gutted, leading to ire within the community. This prompted the users to rally around a new website and continue onward, using the new equivalent phrasing of boning the fish. And thus, bonethefish.com was born. For a while, things were right with the world in the smaller corner of the internet. The email newsletter from the 21st of November highlighted three specific celebrities, Mel Gibson, Kim Kardashian, 
and Lindsay Lohan, along with their respective pivotal fishboning moments. There were also some site usage statistics detailing how many users, votes, and topics there were at that given moment. 1,130, 118,450, and 4,471, respectively. Unfortunately, while the Bone the Fish website still exists today, something about it seems pretty broken, as none of the site's content appears to load at all, and all of the comments and discussions appear to be lost to time, merely leaving a husk of the website without even as much as an HTTPS certificate. I don't know if the underlying database was lost or deleted, but clearly this community no longer exists in the glorious form that it once had a decade ago. I guess one may turn to Reddit or Twitter or other social media sites in attempts to find a similar community, but it's tough to really find one. Sites like this represent an earlier age of the internet that have sadly fallen by the wayside without much preservation. Nowadays, it feels like we're stuck with four or five major tech companies if one wants to have any sort of coherent discussion with an active user base. The most I can really do is tell the story and be reminded when I find something in my inbox from back then that sparks a memory of a different time on the net. Also this week, I got an email notifying me, an alleged Wave user, that on November 24th, Google Wave was sunsetting in 2012. It's funny because I don't actually have any memories of ever using the service. So, unless I have some real hardcore amnesia, this doesn't quite line up. Oh well, it's still somewhat relevant today in a sense. Google Wave was this weird, not-quite-social-media, not-quite-email, and not-quite-chat platform thing, where one could vomit content into a river of more content, and it was a sensory overload of stuff. In a lot of ways, in retrospect, Wave looks like a proto-Discord, Slack, or perhaps Microsoft Teams, in which it allowed for all kinds of multimedia content that could be dropped right into a feed. Some of the documented complaints, such as live typing and interface clutter, all feels like it's a standard in some of the modern equivalents, which makes you wonder. Perhaps it was just slightly ahead of its time to be understood, as some technologies tend to be. It all comes down to timing. Google Wave kind of fizzled out, resulting in its eventual wind down and wave goodbye on April 30th, 2012. Funny enough, in 2021, Microsoft would announce Loop, an app that feels very Google Wave-like in its functionality, where it's sort of this collaborative do-anything experience, but perhaps with more of a work focus this time around. Funny how history repeats time and time again. That's all from me for this episode. I hope you enjoyed this buffet of things learned during the waning days of November and into December of 2011. This episode marks the completion of a card deck, 52 episodes and counting. If you like things learned and want more, go ahead and subscribe to or follow the podcast. If you feel strongly in one way or another about the show, also feel free to give it a rating or review on whatever platform that allows for podcast ratings. As always, it's a pleasure in having you listen to the show, and until next time, have a great whatever it is.
Talk to you soon.